Okay, let me see. We're good. All right. All right. I want to. Uh, I want to jump in here. We're uh, we're talking. Uh, kind of back again, back through the Bible and, and showing kind of a theme, tracing through the Scriptures. I, I told you, uh, we said this in week two, that there were three sons of Jacob that you really kind of wanted to make sure you paid attention to. One we spent a whole week on uh, talking about, and he was who? Spent a whole week talking about, wasn't me at least, so... Ryan Vincent can be offended that you can't remember anything he said. Joseph, okay, the most famous of all of Jacob's son, Joseph. Um, but the other two were, and I heard these names mentioned, the other two, what would be the other two that you want to make sure you pay attention to? Okay, Levi's one, I believe the third born, and then the fourth born, I heard back here, I think from Lowell, Judah. We said you want to pay attention these to these two names to these two groups because it's from these two um, that we get two of the key roles in all of Israel's history and that is from Levi the priests and from Judah the the kings um, so from from Levi the priest from Judah the kings um, and or Messiah um, and so that's that's who I want to talk to just a little bit about or talk through a little bit tonight is is these two things. One of the beautiful things, we'll start here. Um, One of the beautiful things that um, you find in the Old Testament is this truth that God, um, in spite of His great power and His great holiness and all that He is, when He brings the people out of Egypt and starts to make a people out of them, make a nation out of them, He chooses... Um, to dwell among those people. That God actually comes close and wherever they are, He sets up camp amongst them. Literally has a tent there, the tabernacle, right in the middle of all those people. Rather than staying on the mountain uh, up on Sinai when He first pulls them out to get in the rules, um, rather than staying uh, distant from them, rather than staying away from them, He moves Himself close to them. But this creates a little bit of a predicament because if, if you remember... Uh, on Sinai, originally, he calls the people around, but he tells them this, that they cannot approach the mountain. That if any of them comes up and touches the mountain, they die. If even an animal comes up and touches the mountain, it dies. You can't approach this mountain. Now, same God who says you can't come and be up on the mountain with me because you'll die, is the same God who's coming to live right in the middle of them. He's not changed at all. And so we have a problem here, and that is that God is going to dwell with His people, but we know this through Scripture that sinful humanity like you and I and like the nation of Israel cannot dwell in the presence of absolute holiness. Um, For the same reason, I like to say, the same reason that paper cannot dwell in the presence of the sun. It's just the sun's just going to burn it up. That's what God does to sin, including the sin that has attached itself to us. And so you have this issue. You can't have God's presence directly with the people. There has to be some way to mediate that presence to the people. And that's where the priests come in. And so God um, 
God sets this in place for, for priests to come through. The priests um, were average, normal human beings, and there's a really big advantage to that, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Um, but they couldn't be just any human being. They had to be um, an average, normal human being from the lineage of Aaron, um, Moses' brother. They have to be from a, a direct descendant of Aaron. And Aaron, of course, is a descendant of Levi. He's of the tribe of Levi. Now, this is kind of important to note. The Levites are called apart as a separate people, as kind of a special people, and they have religious um, responsibilities. Primarily, they take care of the tabernacle as it's moving about and, and take care of uh, the temple. But not every Levite could be a priest, um, only those who are from Aaron's lineage were allowed to be a priest. And, and, and then out of that lineage, one would be selected to be the high priest um, over and above all the rest who would take care of some of the most important um, responsibilities of that. And Aaron, of course, starts as that. Um, another thing about them, even though, again, they were normal, they, they were held to higher standards of ceremonial purity and cleanliness. Um, you couldn't have a priest um, with like a maimed body at all, if, with, with any sort of flaws in his physical um, body, which is why, if you remember when Ryan was talking about Antiochus Epiphany, that Greek Syrian ruler who was trying to oppress the Jewish people, he maimed all the priests because what that means is they can no longer perform their duties before God anymore. And so that becomes a big deal when, when that happens. They're not allowed to do that. Priests, um, so, so if you were anywhere in the presence of a dead body as a Jewish person, you had to go through a series of kind of some, some rituals to cleanse yourself and make yourself right again before God. Priests were held to even higher standards and that they weren't allowed to be, like it wasn't just if you're around a dead body, then you cleanse yourself. Like they weren't allowed to be around a dead body period, unless it was a close relative, like an immediate family member. They're not allowed to go to, you know, say like a funeral or something like that, as far as I understand it. They, there's some higher levels of ceremonial purity that they're held to, of cleanliness that they're held to. Um, and, and so brought out of, the tr out of the lineage of Aaron, held to these standards, the primary job of the priest is this. If, if, if you're going to kind of um, whittle it down, uh, the primary job is to represent man to God, to represent human beings to God. And some will add on here, and I think it's fair to say, and to represent God to man, in a sense, that they are, they're kind of the go-between, the mediator, but, but obviously they do a much better job representing man to God because that's what they are. Um, so they come from that side a lot better. In a sense, um, the priests are the embodiment of what the tabernacle was. So the tabernacle is the meeting place between God and man. The priest, and, and this is, I think, some significance to it, the priest's clothes are actually made out of the exact same garments, the exact same materials as the tabernacle. It's, it's like a symbol saying he is an embodiment of what the tabernacle is. The, he is the meeting place, the connection between God and man. So that's what the priest does. Now there are a number of aspects to this representation that he does, but the primary one and the one that the scriptures focus on the most um, is his responsibility for sacrificing. He made the sacrifices for, for God, whether that was burnt 
offerings or sin offerings or wave offerings. Um, primarily, most of the sacrifices had to do with sin, and that's what the priest is doing is he is making atonement, um, clearing things up for the sins of the people. The, the most significant of all of those sacrifices is one we've touched on a little bit, and that's the sacrifice that took place on the Day of Atonement. Um, the Day of Atonement, which is where the, the high priest would enter. So the priests were the only ones allowed to enter into what we would call the holy place, um, which is that first main room in the tabernacle and then later the temple. Um, they were the only ones allowed to go in there. That's where they would go in and, and make the burnt uh, offerings. That's where they would um, make the sacrifices. But the high priest is the only one who could go past that into the most holy place. And only one day a year is he allowed to do that. That is the Day of Atonement. He goes in there to the Ark of the Covenant where it is said that the presence of God dwells between the two cherubim as they're coming up, the mercy seat, and God is there. And this is where um, the high priest goes in and he sprinkles the blood of the scapegoat, or not the scapegoat, the scapegoat is the one who goes out. He sprinkles the blood of the sacrificial goat, the one that is sacrificed, and he sprinkles that on the altar as a way of making atonement for the sins of the people. This is what the priesthood does. They represent man to God. They make atonement for the sacrifice or, or for the sins of human beings before God in order for God and His presence to be with them. That needs to be taking place. Um, but there is... Um, a handful of problems with the priesthood. There are some, some shortcomings to this system. Uh, the biggest one all, also happens to be one of the best benefits of it, and that is what I said earlier, that the priest is human, that priests are human beings. And, and, and the advantage of that is that a priest is able to uh, sympathize with my weakness and with my struggle. He knows what it is to struggle with sin. So when he's standing before God and praying and making atonement and sacrificing, like he's doing that with a compassion, with a sympathy that comes with knowing what that's like. Um, and so, so that is an advantage, but it's a disadvantage because of what I just said. He knows what it is to sin. He is a sinful human being, which means, think about this, my representation before God is inherently sinful. My connection to God, my go-between, the meeting place between me and God is inherently, by its very nature, sinful. And so this becomes um, one of the greatest problems of the priesthood is that um, the very one standing before him, we see it all the way at the very beginning, Aaron, the very first high priest, um, leads the people into sin. Now, he's not a high priest yet at this time, but he leads them into the worship of the golden calf. And then even after he becomes a high priest, we see this kind of mini rebellion with him and Miriam against Moses where they're against him. And so there seems that there is this sinful nature in them. We see this in, uh, actually, it's, it's worth pointing out, Leviticus 8 through 10 is one of the main areas that deals with the priesthood. And God talks about what this priesthood is going to be like. And what he does in it is he actually goes, he, he takes them in, in, I believe it's chapter 9, through like this ordination service. And, and the very design of it is to set them apart, to make them holy. And they have to make sacrifices because the priests are sinful. They have to make sacrifices to make them clean. They can make them ceremonially clean, but they can't change their hearts. They can't change what they're on the inside. That's evidenced by the fact that in the very next chapter, two of Aaron's sons get killed by God for their sinful, um, for their sinful activity in the presence of the tabernacle. 
um, fire comes out of it and consumes them and kills them before the people. Um, we don't know actually exactly what is what happens there. We see some stuff about offering unauthorized fire. It, it looks like there's a couple hints um, that tell us that they were actually drunk while they were ministering there in the tabernacle. And, and from the beginning, the, the very first ones ordained for the priesthood are wicked and sinful. And so my, my connection to God is inherently sinful. The, the other problem with my, uh, my, the priests being uh, human is this, that my connection to God keeps dying off. Because the priests being human are mortal. And so they succumb to death. And so the high priest, the very one who stands between me and God, like that, that connection he brings me, that representation he brings me doesn't last forever. It gets cut off, and then I need a new one. And then that one gets cut off, and then I need a new one, and over and over again. And I, I have no idea whether the one that's coming after this one is going to be as good as that one or worse, or, or whether how well he'll do the job, I don't know. It's, it's just... Over and over again, I'm going to need a new one. So because they're human, they are sinful, they are mortal. Another problem is the nature of the sacrifices that they offer. Um, and, and that is that, uh, that human sin can only truly be paid for by human blood, by human life. And yet he's walking in each day and then each year offering goat's blood, offering the blood of a bull for himself because of his own son. He's offering animal blood, and that, that can't pay. Like, what that can do, God made a way for that to, as we said, cleanse me ceremonially. What that means is I'm, I'm kind of made clean, I'm made right to still be a part of this people, to still be a part of God and, and to be amongst the tabernacle, but it doesn't do anything for the inside of me. It doesn't take away my sinful heart. It doesn't cleanse my conscience, and, and, and there's still the weight and, and the guilt of that sin on me because the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews 9 says, can never take away the sacrifice of, or can never pay the penalty for sin, can never take away the guilt of sin. So this is the one major problem with the priests. Now we come real quick to the kings. Now, the kings and the priests don't step onto the scene at the same time. It's kind of important to know. The kings don't come until 400 years after the priests. The priests come almost immediately out of the Exodus. God institutes the priesthood there, but the kings don't come until a little bit later, and, and we'll talk about why in just a second. Um, the king's primary job, um, to, to boil this one down, the king's primary job was to rule or shepherd, that's a word that gets used a lot for the king, to shepherd God's people on God's behalf. The king's job is to shepherd the people of God on his behalf. And this was done in a few different ways. It was done by, number one, leading them. Um, the political ruler is expected in some sense to be a religious ruler. He may not do all the things that the priest does, but he's expected to lead the people in the ways of Yahweh, to lead them towards God. He's, he does this by protecting them from their enemies, protecting God's people from the surrounding enemies. He does this by establishing justice in the land, establishing justice amongst the nation, making sure that there is shalom, peace, that things are right and as they should be. This is what a king is supposed to do, but this wasn't the original idea. This wasn't the, the way things actually went 
originally. The, the original um, plan was that God himself was to be the king. It was to be a true legitimate theocracy in which God is his king and God would rule kind of through an agent that we, that we usually end up calling like a judge. Um, someone who is not necessarily the king, but they were kind of in charge. They, God spoke to them, and they would decree what was to be done. The first of the judges, uh, although I, I think, I don't know if this title ever gets used for him, um, but Moses is basically the first of them. And, and, and then on down into Samuel. Now, this is, this is one of the keys about the judge. This is why the judges were a good idea, and the kings are a bad idea. The judges were hand-picked. And so when Moses dies, the leadership doesn't go on to Moses' sons. The leadership goes on to Joshua, who God has deemed as the next worthy person to do this. And so on and so forth. And so it goes from whoever God deems to be worthy and right to do this. When you get a king system set up, it becomes hereditary. And so a person becomes king just by virtue of being the king's son, um, rather than God picking him. This is actually where it first starts to go wrong is when Samuel, and he's the last of the judges, when Samuel, who has been leading the people, gets old and he's about to die and his time is done, he appoints his own two sons as the rulers to look over the people. And his own two sons are wicked, and so this is what creates the problem. And this is where the people say they want a different king, they ask for a king. This is 1 Samuel 8. Go there if you've got it. 1 Samuel 8, this is the story that leads us to the kings. This is what brings the kings into Israel. Chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 to you. It says this, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected, here it is, me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so God says, give this to them. And, and it's not, you'll notice, it's not just because Samuel's sons are wicked. If that's it, they could have just said, pick somebody else. But they say, we want a king like what? Like all the other nations around us. We want to be like them. We, we want their system. We want the way that works. And, and so that's what they want. God says, fine, you, let them have this, but you need to warn them from the get-go what this is going to cost them. That the king does not come and look out just for their interests. He, look at, he looks out for his own. And he's going to take their sons and put them in war. And he's going to take their daughters and make them serve in the palace. And he's going to take their property and he's going to take their taxes. And, and so from the beginning, Samuel stands up. And if you read the rest of chapter 8, Samuel is warning the people and just saying, just so you know what you're getting yourself into. Just so you know that this is going to be flawed from 
the very beginning. And so this is what he says to them, and, and um, this ends up being the case, that there is a problem with the kingship in Israel. The, the problem is actually the exact same problem as it is with the priests. The kings are human beings. And because the kings are human beings, they are first of all sinful. They're sinful human beings, and we see this, the, the Bible consistently, the Old Testament, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and all through the prophets, consistently holds the kings responsible for the waywardness of the people. It always says that the kings are the ones leading the people into idolatry. The kings are the people who are leading people away from, these, uh, away from God. And not only that, that they fail to. So they're not leading. Remember, they're supposed to lead, protect, provide justice. Their sinfulness means they don't lead as they ought to. And they fail to provide justice. In fact, they often bring injustice. They do exactly what they're not supposed to do. Um, let me read to you from Jeremiah 23. This is what he says about the kings. Jeremiah 23 verses 1 through 2. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares Yahweh. And so, because of their sinfulness, they fail to lead. Because of their sinfulness, they fail to provide justice. Also because they're human, they are mortal. And they die. And, and, and whenever they die, they end up usually leaving the nation in a weakened and vulnerable state. I'm reading through... Um, this this kind of this book called uh, called Israel and the Nations by F. F. Bruce, um, great book. If you like history at all, if you want to understand the Old Testament and how it basically traces the Exodus all the way to the New Testament, so even that intertestamental period traces the history of Israel. But then it also tells you what was going on in all the nations around it, providing the context to help you understand why the Bible is saying the things that it's saying and why it's talking that way. So, Israel and the Nations by F.F. Bruce, but I've been amazed at how many times it says this, and this king died, and then the Moabites used that as an opportunity to attack. This king died, and Edom, who was under the thumb of Judah at that time, used it as an opportunity to rebel. And over and over again, when the king dies, the, the nation is left vulnerable. And, and so, uh, because they're mortal, they can't do that second thing I said they were supposed to do. They, don't, they cannot fully protect the people. They cannot fully, even if you have a good king who's trying to do the right things, and by the way, the very best of them, which we would say is David, the very best of them is still sinful. The very best of them is still using people for his own purposes. But even if you have a good one like him, eventually he dies and then his son Solomon takes over and eventually leads the, 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 the people astray. And so their sinfulness and their mortality work against them over and over and over again. So here's the question. If the priests and the kings, by their very nature, by their very human nature, are flawed, how in the world can God's people ever be shepherded properly? And how in the world can they ever be properly represented before God? How can they have the right relationship with God they're supposed to if their priest is flawed? How can they be shepherded and led properly if their priest is, or if their king is flawed and human? And the answer, of course, is that you need someone who's more than human to do those things. 
And, and, and I didn't say, I, intentionally, I didn't say you need someone who's not human. No, you actually need someone who is human. But you need someone who is more than human to do those things. And that's where we get Jesus. And so God sends Jesus in, and Jesus takes both of these roles. Let me walk backwards. We'll cover the kings first, and we've talked a fair amount about the kingdom, so we'll just do it briefly. Um, but, but Jesus comes, and, and He does what the kings cannot because He does not act as the kings do sinful. Remember Jeremiah 23, He rebukes the kings for their wickedness and for their failure to establish justice. That's verses 1 through 2. Let me take you just a few verses over to verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. This is what He says, The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh, our righteous Savior. This is what he says about him. And then there's a more famous prophecy about this in Isaiah 9. This is a lot of times read as a Christmas passage. This is what it says in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Is that where I want to go? Uh, yeah, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. So do you hear what is prophesied in Jeremiah and in Isaiah? You have a king who will uphold justice, who will no longer be sinful, and he'll uphold righteousness, and his reign will never end. And, and both of them, you may have noticed this, basically says this, when this king reigns, Yahweh reigns. This will be his name, Yahweh our righteous Savior. You will call him the Prince of Peace. You will call him the Everlasting Father. When this king reigns, God reigns because he's more than just human. So we see these things. And by the way, this was the point from the beginning, right? This was the idea, not just at the beginning where Israel was supposed to have God as their king. Now that's going to take place again. This was actually the point all the way back in Genesis 2 or Genesis 1 when God sets man and woman up and says, you have dominion over the earth. The, 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 the idea was that they would rule over the earth on God's behalf for him. Now someone's finally coming who's going to do that, that being Jesus himself. Pay attention. When you're in the New Testament, pay attention to how often the apostles in their preaching, in the book of Acts, or in their writing, in the epistles, stress Jesus as king. How much they, they want to make sure to tell you that he is the Christ, that is, the promised king, the promised Messiah. How often they will say this, um, that he is from the line of David. Paul, in, in what many consider kind of the quintessential gospel epistle. That is Romans. That's like the key one, right? And his introduction to the book, the intro is where we give you a summary of what I'm about to tell you. 
Um, he says this, this is my gospel concerning the Son of God, concerning Jesus, concerning, it says, His Son, God's Son, who, as to His earthly life, is of the lineage of David. It's the first thing he says about Jesus. They stress over and over again that He is from the tribe of Judah, that He is of the line of the kings, because to them, a Jesus who comes and merely saves, just a Savior, but not a king, I think they would say, is not good news, is not gospel. We need a king as much as we need a savior. And so that gets talked about over and over again. We also see him come as a priest to replace what is supposed to be done there. The main book dealing with this is the book of Hebrews. And uh, for those of you guys who are students who've, who've been here at the table, you know we've we spent a whole year in Hebrews. And the idea in Hebrews is he's writing to these Jewish Christians who are considering going back to just Judaism because Judaism is is a semi-protected religion in the Roman Empire. Christianity is not. And as Christianity begins to grow and begins to differentiate itself from Judaism, they start experiencing more persecution. Not to mention the persecution they already experienced amongst their, their own people because they, they seem to be leaving Judaism. And so they're wanting to still worship God. They don't want to leave God. They just want to go back to the old way of doing it. And the book of Hebrews is written to say you can't do that. You can't have God without Jesus. He is the way to there. And so one of the main ways he likes to show this is that Jesus is actually the true high priest. That all the priests that were ever listed, and the idea of the high priest was only a shadow of what God was really moving us towards in Jesus. He says he's the perfect high priest because he undoes all these problems that we had with the Levitical priesthood. Go to Hebrews 7. This is an amazing passage. Hebrews 7, verses 23 to 28, says this, Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Mortality is done away with. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. What he says is that Jesus overwhelms the two problems, major problems of the Levitical priesthood and the sinfulness and the, and, and the mortality are both done away with. Also, he hits on this idea that Jesus' sacrifice is better than those of the animals, that he is able to purify them wholly because he's actually offering his own blood, um, perfect human blood, sinless human blood, now, here is why it's important, though, that, that Jesus, this is why um, what we call the, the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ, that he is both fully God and fully man together. This is why this is so important, because God himself 
cannot necessarily pay for. You can't have the blood or the life of a God to pay for the sin of a man. You need human life to pay for human sin. And so he had to be human in order to do that. But he had to be God in order to be perfect, in order to live forever, in order to overcome death. Um, as a human being, he does those things. Also, Hebrews 4, I won't read it right now, but write this down. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says the good news about Jesus is even though he was sinless, we don't lose the sympathy because he came and he lived a human life and he dealt with temptation and dealt with sin, uh, the, the struggle against sin that we have. And so he undoes both of these problems in both of the kings and the priests. We've talked about this before. I'll wrap up with this. We've talked about this idea back in Exodus 19. The people of God, when, when He called them out into the wilderness, He told them that they were going to be for Him a kingdom of priests. That is, this nation of Israel was supposed to do what Adam was supposed to do, and that is represent God rightly to the world. They were supposed to show the world what He was like and be this kind of go-between between God and, and revealing Him to human beings and helping them come to Him. That's what they were supposed to do, but they failed to do that. The priests themselves failed to do that. The kings themselves failed to do that. And the people did. And so um, they, they failed to do what they're supposed to do. Jesus, and this is why this is so great, He comes from the line of Judah and is able to, as a king, bring the kingdom that they were supposed to, to be. And then at, in His purity, He is able to, as a priest, bring the priesthood that they were supposed to be able to provide. And then we see this amazing transition that Jesus takes this together, what Israel was supposed to be, He takes it in Himself, and then He conveys it to His people. And so, through Jesus, we become what Israel was supposed to be. This is what Revelation 5 says. Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. We'll end with this. This is what the people in heaven are saying to Jesus. They say, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Pretty cool idea. And I love that. This is, this is the beauty of the New Testament, by the way. All the blessings we get, we get because we're in Jesus. And He's gained them all for Himself. We get those, including this idea of the kingdom of the priests. Any, any questions or, or just thoughts that kind of creep in your mind as, as we talk about this? Anything on your mind? Yeah, Brandon? You said that the priests are sinful and mortal, as are the kings are sinful and mortal. If that's the case, then explain explain the leadership that we as Christians are supposed to give to the people if we are just as sinful and mortal as the kings and priests. Yeah. What's the difference? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I would say this, we are a kingdom of priests, but we would say that there's, so, so, kind of gets tough. We're sinful and mortal, but actually according to Scripture, according to God, we're actually not sinful and we're no longer bound by death. We're not bound by sin or death anymore. And so, um, before God, we're declared as righteous because of what I said, we're actually in Christ. And so His righteousness is accounted to us. Um, he's become for us righteousness from God. And so, so we're actually deemed to be worthy to serve as priests because we're not 
we're not held under the guilt of sin anymore. He has made us um, pure forever. And then we're actually, even though we, our bodies will break down, we're not bound by death anymore. And, and this, is what, this is what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that the first fruits was Jesus and that He conquered death and showed us that it's only temporary and that we'll do the same. So that's a great question. Uh, Jesus is uh, the Sunday school answer. Jesus is the answer that makes us no longer sinful and mortal. So that's good. Yeah, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, are they are they prophesying the first and the second together? I think um, to, to answer your question as to whether there will be a physical kingdom, I think the answer is yes. Um, I don't think it's the way popular American Christianity has often viewed it that like he'll set up his kingdom in Israel and then kind of rule from there and all those things. I, I think that um, what we see in the end is heaven and earth meeting together, and so we get a new earth that is a physical place where the king reigns, and so what we'll experience is actually an actual very physical place, and, and God reigns and rules there. Jesus reigns and rules there, and we experience that. As to whether Isaiah and Jeremiah are talking about that, um, that gets into a really interesting question as to what prophecy is, um, as to what they see actually. I think that one of the best illustrations I'll kind of draw here, and, 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 and uh, the short answer is I don't know, but this is, uh, this is what we think is, this is what some people think is kind of going on with the prophets sometimes, is that as they're looking, what they kind of see is this mountain range, and, and when you look at a mountain range, when you're driving into Colorado and you see a mountain range, all you see is a flat picture, right? You can see that range, but it's all just kind of right there in front of you, almost like one line. Whereas the truth is, what you actually have, I'll kind of draw it two different ways, what you actually have is this mountain is behind this mountain, this mountain is in front of both of them, right? It looks like a big line, and so what we don't know, and what some people think is happening, is that Isaiah kind of sees almost like this, and he sees almost kind of like this righteous and coming king, and it's all kind of blending together, this mountain range in front of him, when really what he might be seeing is almost kind of two levels of what's happening. We know that, that oftentimes the prophets are actually prophesying about something that's about to take place right in front of them. They're, they're prophesying about something that's going to take place in Israel in the next 50 years, but then the New Testament comes in and says, yeah, it was that, but it was also the coming of Jesus. And so there's a chance that it could also be the second coming of Jesus when they talk about this perfect reign that is coming with Christ. So I, I think there's, that's sort of a complicated answer, but, but I hope that helps a little bit. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think I like I think one of the reasons they it's it's fi- I don't want to say figurative, but the, the reason there's not much clarification, I don't know if you were to ask, like if you were to go to Isaiah and say, So is this first or second coming? I think he'd be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like I don't even think he knew that. I don't think he saw that much or knew that much. He just said, All I know what, I, what God is showing me is that there's this king that's gonna come and make it right. And we say, Is it this or is it is it the first or second? And he'd go, 
Yes. You know what I mean? I think is, is I know that when the Messiah comes, he makes it right. I don't know the exact timeline and when and how, but so it's a really good question. Anything else? All right. We'll take a, a three-minute break, and then Scott will get up here and take us through the next section. We will come back to that question. Um, but first, let me, let, me, let me start by praying, please. God, we do want to stop and to acknowledge you and acknowledge that you are at work and um, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we need and you know what we want. And um, Lord, I, I ask that you would use tonight uh, as an opportunity to experience um, who, who you are and, and what you want for us. And, and God, that whatever, whatever things we have going on in our life that we would be able to disconnect from temporarily in order to hear from you, in order to not let things distract us from you. And I pray, God, that, that we would walk away tonight not only with, with knowledge, but also an experience of you. And uh, God, that we would hear from you in, in, a, in a real way and that we would leave here, in some sense, different than how we walked in. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, so as you, maybe some of you are somewhat new in, uh, to, to what we're doing, but basically we are trying to walk through the Bible, give an overview of the Bible, teach through some major stories and major timelines, but also major themes and major movements of um, the gospel of God. And so we come to the act and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so my objectives tonight are, are two things, twofold. First, I want to, I want to give an overview of the Bible and, 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 and how the Holy Spirit works in the Bible. And so how we're going to do that is we're going to talk a little bit about how He seems to be working in the, in the Old Testament. We're going to transition to the New by looking at what the prophets have to say about the Holy Spirit. And and then we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament. And so in the Old, I'm going to give you two, two ways in which He's at work. And then we're going to look at a couple um, um, scriptures in the, from the prophets. And then we're going to look at seven ways He works in the, in the New Testament. And so it's going to be pretty, it's going to be easy to follow along. I want, I want you to write some stuff down. I'm going to give you verses underneath all the seven of the New Testament. I'm going to read them, but I want you to write the references down, but just out of time's sake, I'm going to, I'm going to read them. Um, and we're going to, and we're going to get to that and it's hopefully going to take around 20 minutes. And then I'm going to give about 10 minutes, um, to you guys to spend some time in prayer. Um, and so here's my, here's, here's what I've wrestled with as I've thought about teaching about the Holy Spirit is, um, I, I don't want to just get up here and talk about him. I want, I want us to walk away having experienced Him. So, um, so where we're heading is, you know, I, I want us to see an overview of, of how he is, He's at work in, in the Scriptures, but then also I want us to spend some time in prayer. And, 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 and so I'm going to give you some, some questions to walk through, and it really is just for you. You're not going to turn these in. I'm not going to grade them. Uh, it's just, you're just, you're, these are just questions to guide you in this process of, of listening to 
and, and surrendering to, to God in whatever He may have for you tonight. So that's my hope and prayer. And then, and then in between the first part and the second part, I hope to open it up to some questions. Um, but that's, that's where I want to go tonight. So uh, here's another thing that's going, that's going to happen inevitably. When you talk about the Holy Spirit, there are lots of things that come up with, this, with Him and, and how He works and, and maybe some of your church experiences. And so there's going to be at least two or three major topics that come up that would be really easy to try and chase. Um, you know, rabbits that you could easily chase and get distracted from. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to not get too distracted from, but I, like I said, I do want to open up some time for questions in the middle. Um, but I, w- I really want, because here's, here's, here's a little bit of my challenge. I don't want us to just, we could talk all day long about, and I, and I really do want to, I want to give appropriate time for that, but I also want to give time for us to spend some time in prayer. So uh, that's what I feel led to do. So that's what we're going to do. So here's one of the first big things I'm going to throw out there. A can I'm going to open, and, and, and I'm not going to really spend a whole lot of time because we don't have time. And this, this would take a semester-long course to, to unpack this, but here's, here's the deal. God, the Holy Spirit is God, and He is a person. So, so that, that's where I'm coming from. I'm, I believe the orthodox understanding of the Trinity, that God is three that God is one, three persons in one. That God, Father, and Father, Son, and Spirit are three in one. And so with the Trinity, and this is, I'm going to say this and then we're going to move on, this is big, but with the Trinity, what you have to keep and hold is um, the, the unity of God, that God is one, the diversity of God, that He's three, three persons, um, that they act independent, but all related and connected to each other in perfect union, um, and that they are equal. So whenever you talk about the Trinity, you've got to keep, in, in order to, to remain orthodox, in order to remain faithful to how the Bible describes um, God, and by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but the Bible never uses the word Trinity. The, that word is not in the Bible. So... The Trinity is a word that we've, we've, well, we, the church, came up, came up with to explain how God revealed Himself to us through His Scriptures. So whenever you talk about the Trinity, you've got to keep these three things in perfect balance and integration, and it's unity, diversity, and equality. And again, that would be a whole other, we've, we've, there's a, we have a whole theology class on Trinitarianism that 10 weeks long, and it's, it's in depth, but... So there's that. That's, there's that big can. There you go. Um, here's another one uh, that we'll spend a little bit of time on. But it's, it's that the Holy Spirit seems to be at work or works different in the Old Testament than He does in the New. And, and so let me say a couple things about that. One is, He is the same. I don't believe He has changed. He changes between old and new, just like God doesn't change between old and new. Um, we like to talk about, or some people may have a perception that God in the Old Testament just seemed to be angry and smiteful and all these things, but man, Jesus in the New Testament, He's holding lambs and petting, no, He's petting lambs and holding children. I said I did, I did the exact same thing on Sunday. Why can't I? I always picture the, the picture of holding lambs. 
And then I want to say petting children, and it just doesn't work. It's like, no, it's... Anyway, we're going to edit that off the tape. Um, holding and petting lambs, how about that? And then ho- praying for children, I don't know, whatever he does. Um, but he seems nice in the New Testament. And, and the truth is, he's the same. Old and new, he's the same. Holy Spirit, same, old and new. But just like Jesus, I believe he becomes increasingly more significant. His role, his, his presence becomes revealed increasingly more and his, and his significance. We, we understand his significance more and more. And so let, let me unpack that a little bit. So let's talk about how the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament. And this is a guy named Bruce Ware. Uh, is an Old Testament professor. And this is what he, he basically says, that the Holy Spirit is seen empowering these four kinds of people in the Old Testament. These four kinds. Judges, prophets, um, craftsmen, and then he calls civic rulers. And, and he, he, puts, he puts Moses in that category, um, even though I think Drew's right. Moses acts as a judge, even though Moses is from the line of Levi and so all these things. But he acts as a judge, but he is kind of like, Moses is kind of like this civic ruler. He puts David in those, so kings would be in that. So judges, prophets, craftsmen, um, and rulers, and you see this phrase over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon, right? Coming upon. So that's a, that's a descriptive phrase that's helping us understand what He's doing. And, and so here's, here's the big one. And then I'll give you one more that kind of helps flesh that one out. Is the Spirit is given... Um, to these four types of people for specific tasks. So in other words, task-oriented. It's a task kind of purpose. There's a specific reason, there's a specific task. And, it, and, and the type of task determine the time in which the Holy Spirit is on the person. Um, and so there's a time element there. It doesn't seem to be, it's not the same as a new, where, they come, where he comes and dwells in and he's, and he's, and he's dwelling in. He comes upon and strengthens Samson, or he, you know, he, um, he comes upon, anoints Saul for a task. And, and so we see this task for, for the craftsmen or for, or for, or for the prophets. Um, and then the other part of it is that helps uh, help us flesh this task-oriented part out is it's selective. Okay, so... We, he seems to be selective. God is selective in who has the Holy Spirit. And a, and a great illustration of this is Numbers 11. Okay? Write Numbers 11 down, and you can read the story later. It's a great story. Here's the gist of it. The people, surprise, surprise, are complaining to Moses about being in the desert. Grumbling, complaining is what they always do. Moses turns and starts grumbling and complaining to God. Why did you bring me out with these people? I'd rather you just kill me. Just kill me now, God. So he says that. And then God says, okay, Moses, call 70 of the elders from the people and bring them here to the tent of the meeting. Okay? And as you know, the, the tent was right in the middle of the camp. The camp was all around. The tent was right in the middle. He brings the, brings the men, the, the elders there, and God says, I'm going to pour out the spirit that I poured on you. I'm going to pour out on them. And so they're going to have the spirit. And so they do. And, and they're, they the Spirit comes upon them and they start prophesying. And it's a beautiful thing. And then these two, this guy comes running from the camp. 
It says, Joshua, Joshua, there's two elders that were left in the camp that didn't come when they were supposed to, and they're prophesying in the camp. And they're freaking out. Okay, there's guys prophesying in the camp. And Joshua's ticked because Joshua thinks, listen, they didn't follow your orders, Moses. They didn't come when you told them to. So take the Holy Spirit from them. And he, what he says is, make them stop. That's what, that's what Joshua says to Moses. Okay? And Moses' response is really, really telling. There's a couple things we learned from this. One, we know Moses, at, up until that point, is the only one that had the Holy Spirit. Okay, so selective. And now the, these 70 elders have this Holy Spirit. To, and the, the whole purpose was, okay, Moses, I'm going to give you these 70 men so they can now help judge or govern the people because they're wearing you out. And so I'm going to give you some help. But, but Moses' response tells us something significant about how his understanding of the Spirit. And it's this. He says, are you jealous for my sake? And he says, he says, I wish that all of the Lord's people would be prophets. I wish that the Holy Spirit would come on all of the Lord's people. So in other words, no, I'm not going to take... Are you kidding me? I'm not going to take the Holy Spirit from them. That would be crazy. I'll deal with the fact that they didn't come you know, to me later, but that's, that's a separate issue. They have the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's Moses' perspective. And I think that's really helpful. Um, so we, we see this task-oriented. We see this. It's selective. Um, there seems to be a time element. Not everyone has it. So like David would have it for the rest of his life because he is king for the rest of his life. And the prophets would have the Spirit but for the rest of their life because they were uh, being used by God for the rest of their life. But we know that Saul, um, God took the Spirit from him. That's, that's 1 Samuel 16, 14. Um, and so there seems to be an element where, okay, remove. Um, but we don't see that with everybody. We just see that with, with a few. So we see this, this coming upon in the Old Testament. And, and then... And then the prophets come. And just like with Jesus, they prophesy of a new day to come, of a new covenant to come. And when that happens, something new is going to take place. Right? So the prophets become this transition from how the, how the Holy Spirit's at work in the old to how He <clears throat> will work in the new. And so Ezekiel and Joel are two texts that we're going to look at. Ezekiel from exile and Joel... Basically, prophesy of a coming, a coming day when the Lord will do something <clears throat> new <clears throat> with His people. So here's exile, or sorry, exile. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 28. You can write those down. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 28. <clears throat> and Joel 2, verses 28 through 29. So here, here's Ezekiel 36. It says, and I will give you a new heart. He, in the context, he's describing of this new day, this, this new thing that's coming, when God's going to rescue his people and do something new. And I will give you a new heart, and, I will, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. You'll no longer have a hard heart towards me, people. And I will give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart towards me. And he says, verse 27, And I will put my spirit in, within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I give your forefathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And so again, 
like Drew said, he is he what's he talking about? Is he talking about Pentecost? Is he talking about new heavens and new earth? Um, that's a good question. There's another can. Um, well, maybe we can talk about that later. Um, but certainly, we'll see evidence of Pentecost in this next one. Joel 2, 28-29 <clears throat> says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my, my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and da- your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. <clears throat> your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my, my Spirit. So, anybody know where, where that is quoted? Acts chapter 2, when Peter's sermon in Pentecost. And so, the people are like going, okay, what is happening? Why? Everybody's speaking in different languages and we can all understand. How is this possible? And Moses, or Moses, Peter gets up and he preaches and he quotes this verse and basically says, this is happening now. Like, this is going on right now. So, we see something new taking place. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon and coming, coming to dwell within. Because Peter says this, when, they, when the people say, we're cut to the heart, what shall we do? He says, repent and believe. And repent and be baptized and receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And so now this seems to be open to those who repent and are baptized to receive the Spirit. It's not selective in, in terms of God choosing it's, well, there you go, can. I just opened. Um, there seems to be a, a, an opening to receive the Spirit and a, a, call, to, to a, a call an invitation to receive. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So, we know that if you heard me several weeks ago, temple or tabernacle meant the presence of God. And so now what he's saying is, listen, it's, I'm not going to dwell in the, God's saying, I'm not dwelling in the temple anymore. It's, it's the, he's, Paul's saying this to the church. It's the church that I'm going to dwell in. And, and so we know that the Holy Spirit is doing something new and different. And this question got brought up, and I think this is worth asking. Why? Why would it be new? Why would it be different why would the Holy Spirit now work differently in Acts 2 than He does in 1 Samuel 16? What's changed? Okay. We've been, we've been just like what, what Drew said, we've, we've been, now, we've, um, now we have direct access to God based on what Jesus has done, and now He represents us. And so now we've been, we've been cleansed. He's 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 covered us, and so now we can, God can dwell. Drew said at the very beginning that God, the Holy God, can't dwell in the presence of sinful people. But based on what Jesus has done and the covenant that we've received from His blood, washing, cleansing, covenant we've received from Him, we now can have God's Spirit dwell in us, and which is huge. <clears throat> huge is an understatement. Um, the the the, the, new, the New Testament. Um, I, I, I'm convinced that we don't really know. We take for granted who we have dwelling within us. First John 4, 4 says, Greater is He that is in you than He is in the world. Um, Romans 8 is a huge text that's going to help you understand um, 
the significance of the Spirit at work in your life, I'm convinced I don't, I don't, I don't remember that well enough. I don't um, act upon that. I don't trust in God's presence living in us. Um, 1 Corinthians 2 would be another text that would be a great section to understand, huge section on, on the Spirit. But let me just give you seven things that, um, where we see the Holy Spirit at work in, uh, in, at the New Testament. And like I said, I'm going to give you these seven things, then I'm going to give you the, verse, the references, and I'm going to read them quickly, and we're going to move on. We see Him inspiring the Word of God. This, this outline, by the way, I got from Wayne Grudem, so I'm stealing all my stuff from smarter people. Wayne Grudem says, the first one is inspiring the Word of God. Here's 2 Peter 1, verse 21. It says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but when men spoke from God as they were carried away along by the Holy Spirit. So he's describing how God's Word was spoken through men by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Here's the second thing we see. is We see the Spirit empowering the Gospel message. <clears throat> so, empowering the Gospel message. There's a lot of thing, ways you could describe this. You could say glorifying Jesus. <laughs> you could say pointing. The, the Spirit, um, a little side note, is the Holy Spirit seems to be a divine pointer and empowerer. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament never seeks glory, never really seeks attention. Um, so, yes, we don't talk about the Spirit enough, but the Spirit, I'm not sure, wants us to exalt Him higher than Jesus. He seems to be constantly pointing to Jesus and pointing to the Father. And so there's this, there's this beautiful relationship there. But we see him as a divine pointer and empower, and certainly empowering the gospel message. Here's, here's two verses. Acts 1.8. You can read, look up Acts 1.8. It's, it's, we'll, we'll actually jump into it next week quite, quite extensively. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1.5 is the other one. He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So we definitely see that. We see evidence of that in the book of Acts, which we'll talk about next week. Um, him at work empowering the gospel message through Paul, through Peter, through others. Third, regenerating the sinner. Regeneration. Regenerating the sinner. Regeneration is another way of saying, saying recreating or rebirthing. So John 3, 5 through 8 is a text that, that I'm going to leave for you to look up. That's John 3 is the, the famous um, verse that Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And, and uh, he's, of course, he's talking about um, being born of the Spirit, and Nicodemus is confused. And so, great text to just help understand the, this, this process. And then 1 Corinthians 12.3 is a really helpful text for me because... 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So for a person, so if you're sitting here and you're saying, 
I, I actually believe Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. That I, that I need to, that He's bought my life and I owe my life to Him. That, you, that, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, to be able to even say that. Because you wouldn't know who Jesus was if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. Showing you, revealing to you, helping you understand Him, helping you follow Him, helping you surrender to Him. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be anything without God's Spirit helping you along the way. So, huge, huge thing to understand. Fourth, we see sanctifying the believer. Sanctifying the believer. Um, I could talk forever on this one. Sanctification is literally, the word literally means the process of being made holy. Um, and so we see this process that's happening to those who are in Christ, that they're being made more like Christ. Here's a couple texts. Uh, I'll give this one to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18. You can look that one up. <coughs> 2 Corinthians 3.18. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So you could also put Galatians 5, 22-23, the fruits of the Spirit. So the evidence of the Spirit's work in someone's life is, is them becoming more like Christ. Uh, fifth thing, guiding the believer. Guiding the believer. John 14, 26 says this. Jesus says this. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, in whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring you to, bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. And then the other one you can put down is Romans 8.14. Romans 8.14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we see the Spirit guiding. We see the Spirit guiding Paul through his journeys. We see, the, we see evidence of this all throughout. Uh, sixth is empowering gifts for ministry. Empowering gifts for ministry. This, is a, this could be potentially another can that we could open up. And talk about, okay, does the Spirit still work in the same way now that He did in, the, in, in Acts or in, in the New Testament? Um, in, empowering people with gifts, um, spiritual gifts. <clears throat> Are there still, is there still a place for prophecy and for miracles and for tongues and all these things? We could, we could go down that road, we're not going to, but I'm just going to open the can and let you, ten, you know, create tension for you. Um, and we can talk about it later. We do actually believe, Drew and I and our Sunnybrook would, would say, we, we, are, we are continuationists versus cessationists. Cessationists believe the Holy Spirit ceased to work the way He worked in Acts at the end of Acts. At the end of the first century, when the church was finally birthed and launched, then the Holy Spirit stopped working in the same way He did in Acts. That's what a cessationist would say. And a continuationist, Continuationists would say, <clears throat> "We believe he acts the same way he did then that he does, and he does now. That he that he gifts people for ministry. That he there's there's a place for all these gifts and these and there's lists of them um, that you've probably seen. Um, so, and we could talk about charismatic how they would answer that question. There's there's lots that we could go through. But I'm going to quote one verse, one or two actually. First Corinthians twelve four and seven. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and 7. 
Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The good of the church. To, to edify and to build up the church. <clears throat> and then lastly, number seven, is unifying believers. Unifying believers. And Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Let me read that. Um, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, any questions? Yes. You don't see evidence. You see evidence of the Holy Spirit in, in Genesis 1, 1, 1, right? Hovering, right? So we see God there. We see God the Father creating. We see the, hover, the Spirit hovering. We know from John 1, 1 that the Son is, is the Word, and so we see the Word spoken. Um, but we don't, there's no, there's no indication of what you're describing. So I, I don't know how I would, I, I can't answer that. Um, but what I can say is there seems to be a progression of God's presence after the fall. So you see God walking with Adam and Eve, and then sin happens, and, God's, and they are kicked out of the garden. And, and then you see the Holy Spirit coming upon. And then you see Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, walking around, taking up physical places, but not everywhere. And then you see the Spirit coming to dwell in. Now, the Spirit of the Lord, Christ, is within us and wherever we are. And then you see in Revelation, God living with His people again. So I, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I would say, um, I don't know, there's, there's no talk of the Spirit and Adam and Eve before sin. So, good question. Yeah. Yeah. Just says God's God says to, right? So um or was that just like God was God actually doesn't say. Um we know that it says a few times it uses plural language to describe God. We create create him in our image, right? In the image we created him. Um let us make man in our image. So, so there's that language there, but there isn't a description of, but I would, yeah. So it's God who, who says to Cain. So yeah, don't, don't know how to differentiate that. Um, Drew may have a better answer afterwards. But let me continue. <laughs> I'm sure he does. Um, so here, here's, here's a point, and here's where I want to get to. Um, 
in Acts, okay, in Acts, the Holy Spirit is at work. Um, what doesn't seem to happen is the, the, the church is sitting around studying the Holy Spirit at work in, 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 the, in the Torah and the laws and the prophets, and all of a sudden they re- the Holy Spirit is working in and, and through them. There doesn't seem to be a connection. Well, again, I'm, I'm a little bit hyperbole here, but they don't seem to be experiencing the Holy Spirit because they studied the Holy Spirit is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. Because there is a difference between knowing about and, and surrendering to, right? And having experience with. And so, um, so I, want, I, want us to, I want us to begin to think in terms of, let's not see the Holy Spirit as, as, as some, someone we can just examine, like a test subject, but that ultimately, hopefully, we're coming to know and, and learn about so that we can surrender to and live our life in response to and be led by, that's the language that Paul used, walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. Um, and, uh, and so that's what, that's what I want, that's what I want for you, that's what I hope you want, and I, I believe that requires a couple things. And I'm, So I'm just going to talk about these two quick things and then give you some time. Listening to and surrendering. Listening and surrendering, I think, are huge. Listening, we don't do this well. We don't listen well. Um, so that listening involves slowing, involves solitude, involves asking God to speak. It involves intentionality, it involves having an anticipating uh, and expecting Him to speak, but but trusting Him to speak when He wants and needs and ha- however He does. So it, it involves intentionality, like the disciplines, putting ourselves in position to hear from Him. Um, so. Listening is a big part in, in knowing the Spirit. And then surrendering, believe, uh, involves believing, involves confessing, involves repenting, involves obeying, involves um, giving control to, and, 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 and letting go of the things that hinder you from walking in Him and walking with Him. So, here's a question, and then we're going to pass this thing out, and you can spend some time is what would it mean, what would it look like for you to regularly listen to God and, and surrender every area of your life over to Him on a regular basis? Like, what would that look like? To, to regularly listen to Him, to be actively seeking to hear His voice and then ready to respond with surrender and obedience and faithfulness to what He calls you to. So, can you pass those out? Um, this sheet has just a bunch of questions. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like for you to um, spend the first minute or so just reading through the questions. And then I want you to go back to the ones that you feel drawn to. So I want this to be a little bit of an exercise in, okay, okay God, direct me to the one, direct me to the question or to the section <clears throat> that you want me to spend some time with. I want this to be led by Him. Okay? So, so read through the questions, and then just say, okay, God, which, which one do I need to spend time thinking about? And, and if it leads you somewhere else, great, follow, follow the Lord. If it leads you to open a Scripture and read something, great, follow Him. 
and then after about seven or eight minutes or so, I will, or maybe longer, I will get up and pray, and then we'll, we'll talk afterwards. Go ahead.